Chapter 22 Never Cry, Not Ever It was a very thin sleep. My dreaming rolled in waves, edging on to me, then pulling back again. I held Miri and dreamed of rain. I held her in the dream. We were in a high place, and everything was dead. The sky looked like a mad mind, electricity blinking all around inside a brain full of sinister intent. The sky looked like a mad mind. The rain came pellet-sized and sideways, appearing as a spill of silver bullets inside each lightning crash. The wind wanted to take skin with it, and sky lit in loud blooms from the black. It was the very worst kind of beautiful. How he knew to bring my friends, I can't be sure. I think I'm not convinced. Speaker says it's all in the scriptures, too plain. No interpretation needed, written right there. A moon falls down, and so begin the dominoes. Either way, he knew Mary was gone, and as insisted, Sia and Dell were brought to my house early the next morning. They hadn't been able to believe it. So when they came into my room and saw, they cried. They woke me up with their crying. I joined them, picking up where I'd left off. We huddled together on the bed and smothered Miri, moving our arms and hands back and forth from her to each other. Sometimes, through tears, we said her name. Miri. The word was empty, yet filled with everything. It was all very sad. They were both presentation ready. Sia hadn't put those kind of clothes on since the burning Flana painting. Her makeup coiled black and gray colors from her forehead down around her face and neck like a shredded candy cane stripe. Tears of dark and dead stars melted from her eyes. It was weird to watch her real tears falling over the painted ones. Del wore his loincloth and hatchet. As he cried, his new goggle kept fogging and filling up, so he pulled it to his forehead and left it there. This was the first time I'd seen Del cry. His Siamese iris was a wet and sad brown. There was much surrealness happening in my bed. Mary still wasn't moving. This was a lot to wake up to. Sia helped me get ready. Del and I carried Mary. A long, dark limo and a bunch of neighbors were waiting outside. They saw her dead in her sleepy shorts and her sleepy shirt, and they wept too. Some gasped and said no. Some whispered something about the moon, Mary and the moon, and some stood blank-faced. It was just the four of us in the back of the limo. We sat Mary upright, like she was still Mary. She leaned against me as we rode to the presentation grounds. The limo pulled to a stop, and the door opened from outside. It was Scrotch. No sunglasses today. His eyes held the same look as when he'd turned around to me in the car the night before, like it had stayed there the whole time. I noticed that I didn't hate him. Wasn't scared, either. There was a wheeled stretcher. Dell and I placed Mary on it. Scratch knew not to help. 
We were led through the halls backstage to a door I didn't know. Three locks, one bolted, two coded. Scratch released them in order. You will need to carry her from here, he told us. You'll find everything you need. The arrangement should be self-explanatory. Kay opened the door to candlelit darkness, a long stairway. Take your time, but don't. You have an hour. I'll come back then. Dell and I lifted Miri from the stretcher. Sia went first, slowly. The stairs were built of stone, aged and worn. Taking Miri's weight with us, Dell and I followed, carefully. Still standing at the top. I'm sorry, said Scratch, pausing and looking away. Then, tossing his eyes down to me, quickly averting them again. For your loss. His wife had also died years ago. But I didn't think about that. I didn't remember. His words only seemed strange. The door closed. I could hear the locks sliding back into place. There was no seam to the doorframe. Zero artificial light seeping through. We kept still for a moment allowing our eyes adjustment to the little flames, our ears to the silence. Shadow by shadow, our surroundings came to life. Every inch of wall, floor to ceiling, was carved ornately. Beautiful designs and scenes intricately rendered. There was God Gary, ribcage exposed, little baby heart in his hands. Next was a carved and painted portrait of warrior god Biclops, Though faded, the paint still held color. It's a lima bear, Dell whispered, transfixed. Biclops was kneeling in victory and holding the skinned face of the bear over his own, slightly crooked. The warrior god's centered and singular eye stared out at us through the animal's emptied right socket. His pose was serene, while the bear's mouth stayed frozen in a roar. Its teeth were carved in relief, still polished and sharp. The artwork surrounding us was overwhelming, amazing enough that, for a moment, it transported Sia out of the reality we were currently taking part in. Her breaths became reverent, filled with pure awe. The last image was Goddess Are. Sia stood at the base of the steps, slowly floating her eyes up and forth the panorama. The goddess sat her back to us, holding her moon high and gazing out across an ocean. The waves were high. Lightning touched them to thick clouds hung in the distance. I couldn't tell if they were coming or leaving. Della and I reached the bottom of the stairs, and again Sia led the way. One large room, also candlelit, with a rectangular marble table in its center. Stone floor, stone walls, high ceiling. The square of this space was carved as well, not by portrait and design, but in a way that pretended it to be something else. Half pillars rounded from the four walls, windows spaced between them. The ceiling had a large oval cut into it, faking an opening directly above the table beneath. The entire space looked like a mold of something, some building from somewhere else, traveled here and set inside this deep stone earth. I recognized it. 
The oval removed from the ceiling, the stone table, the pillars. This was the poster on Sammy's wall. We were inside a carved rendering of the Ascension Temple. I could see in Dell's face that he recognized it too. See, his focus was on something else. A dress lay stretched out long and flat atop the table. Beside it, a small garment, folded and plain, which I assumed was Miri's arm brace. And lined neatly at the foot of the table was an array of traditional makeup implements. We looked at one another. Our commission was a twisted one. By candlelight, inside of this strange and ancient place, we were to prepare Miri to make R.A. Sia approached the table, removed the dress, and watched as Del and I sat Miri down. My sister took a moment, breathed deeply, steeled herself to the task. Del, turn away, she said. He did, hands behind his back, facing the wall. It took me a moment to understand. Lift her, Remy, just a little from the shoulders. I didn't move. Sia took control and arranged me like a marionette. Explicit guidance was necessary. I wasn't functioning. As Sia began to remove Miri's shirt, the feel of what we were doing finally settled on me, heavily. I lowered Miri back down, refusing. I hadn't been consulted. No one had asked my permission. These were my decisions to make. She was my wife, not theirs. My protest was dazed, passively pained, and entirely inside my own head. But my sister heard me. This is for Are, she said. Not Miri. Sia took my hand. This is the goodbye to that part of her life. For everyone else to say goodbye. So they can mourn. After this, we will say goodbye to Miri our way. Her fingers squeezed into mine. Please be strong with me. I lifted Mary again, and Sia removed her shirt, her shorts. Mary had on underwear I'd bought for her, my favorite. Cutely sexy, worn, and slightly faded, a little tattered at the top seam. I almost lost it. Go sit with Dell on the steps. She was saying this for me and for herself. I need time to do this. I stayed still. Go, please. Dell excused himself, head pointed away from Miri. I followed and sat on the second step from the bottom, waiting with my face hung between my knees. Dell climbed higher, spending a little more time with Biclops. Neither of us made a sound. Minutes passed, and Sia called me back. The makeup was beautiful. Seeing Miri decorated now as Are helped to remove the reality just slightly. We put her dress on. Sia pointed to the brace still folded at my end of the table, asking me to hand it to her. I did. It unfolded to something we didn't recognize, not Miri's arm brace. Sia held it, examining the parts with a confused look. A number of small straps, two thick shoulder straps, clasps. We heard the door open at the top of the stairs. Agent Scratch descended through the unnatural light being let in. 
imposing on our privacy. That's not for her, he said, looking at me. It's for you. And tossing a soft bundle at my feet. These two. His eyes moved from me to Miri. He blinked and looked away. I'll be waiting in the hall. Adding insult to critical injury, the bundle unwrapped to show a stuffing of poofy dukes, uncomfortable sandals, and a mound of traditional jewelry. Sia handed me the mystery item. I took a moment with it, turning it around in my hands. Identified, though the situational application was very much lost on me, I was holding a harness, the kind a parent would typically use to carry a small child on the front of themselves. I removed my regular clothes, put on my presentation attire, and reluctantly slid my arms through the two shoulder straps, buckling the clips behind me. Dell pulled them tight. Snug, he said, but it looks too big for a baby. And you don't have a baby. Come on, snapped Scrotch from the top of the stairs. It's time. From the hallway, we could hear them. A crush of people. A multitude milling, waiting. Scared, anxious, and impatient, whispering and shoving. As Del and I carried Mary on stage into view, the sound of the crowd ballooned and popped and reinflated in swollen bouquets. Screams and sad sounds to float above the horrible surprise. Loudness peeked through my ears, and bright sunlight squinted my eyes. I almost dropped Miri from the Shakravid. There was an energy present that I'd never felt here before today. A realness to it. We lay Miri on a similar stone table positioned center stage, garnished with petals, cloud flowers, and lilies. People were sobbing. They cried like they knew her. They held their hearts, reached hands in her direction, and gestured other evidence of sincerity to their suffering. It disgusted me. I hated them, and I hoped for every and each hurting heart to boil and melt out. I wanted to see holes in them. You don't know her. You don't love her. Who the fuck are you? Who are any of you? I wished all their tears to acid. Speaker's robes were black. His yellow gold lay even uglier in the contrast. It twinkled a tiny niceness in the sunlight. His eyes made me think of some bastard angel, tragic and condemned to never cry, not ever, but somehow doing it, breaking all the rules. His tears looked like saline, props, implants on a timer, lit and angled just right for camera number two. His kind is the blight. His kind is the sickest. His eyes cry tap water, but then he looked at Miri, and I couldn't help it. I began to cry too, to sob along with all of them. My disgust wanted to protest this farce. My hate wanted to hold high the anti-symbol of a dry face. But my sadness and theirs synergized. The mourning was just too acute. We had lost her. All of us. From his knees 
Through the script of his sobs, Speaker recited the opening monologue. Is this real? He screamed. Is this real enough for you? Right on time, he stood up, wiped his tears, all but one, and turned to the crowd. What is real? He asked. In your hearts and in your lives, what reality do you fake? In all of your modern ease, what comfortable truths do you clutch? What facts do you rest on? He paused. His voice came back louder. You fluff your sciences like pillows. You sleep soundly upon your easy answers. You snore loud and lazy, fed like livestock on predictable grain. Your diet is cheap. He was hurting feelings. They all listened. But what of it when the sky falls down? When moons vanish from the night sky? The large monitors lit up behind him, showing a digified moon falling down. When goddesses die and take entire moons with them, what is real to you then? What do you believe in now? Scared huddled like slugs, just a wet clump of carbon. It was obvious that the crowd did not know the answer, that they very much wanted, needed to be told. Their true colors were crayon. They were mere children. I was mad at myself all over again for crying with the likes of them. The monitors now blared oversaturated colorings of a new image, a CG RA body. Shredded and cartoonishly ungraceful, wore a pasted-on miry face. They'd given my wife man biceps and huge tits. See, his stomach and mind sank, heavy with too many gross feelings, instantly nauseous. Our beloved god body could not carry our goddess. Speaker made to come closer to Miri as he spoke, but my expression promised that, special, just for him, I would become a murderer if he did. I would remove little parts and let him drip dry from new openings. He stepped back. She could not carry the weight. The CGRA fell to her knees and dropped her moon while her digital Miri face closed its eyes. The image was then replaced by real Miri, a real-time shot of my wife's face lifeless, closed eyes, beautiful makeup. The crowd gasped and rebooted their blatherings afresh. Speaker nodded along to the cow sounds, allowed a small space for drama, and continued. And though she could not carry it, the weight must be carried. The goddess within this girl must be given back. Severely confused looks all around. The scriptures spell our fate too clearly. The moon falls and the storm comes. His voice was toned as a warning, a promise of danger, but his eyes read otherwise. They twinkled a fetish-esque excitement to the sound. The storm comes. The sentence was mouth-watering. He said it again. The storm comes. Real-time Miri, head-to-toe, was superimposed and floating before a stormy background on the monitors. 
The sound system boomed thunder and lightning. The herd startled. Speaker wiped a spit dribble and continued. And the family of this body, this failed vessel. Sia and Dell and myself now filled the monitors. It is they who must bear this weight. He, I now stood alone on the screen, must assume this burden. No longer addressing the crowd, Speaker was screaming his words at me personally. You must deliver our goddess by law. By scripture, you must bear her body to the temple. He turned back to the crowd. As he carries her, he will carry all of us. He, our poet, will race the storm. Our poet, our warrior, and our painter. Again, the three of us appeared on the screen. We'll race the storm together. They will deliver our fallen goddess home. They will reach the Ascension Temple. They will race the storm. He paused. Complete silence. And they will win. As he raised his arms, the noise rose with them. Do you believe? And the crowd screamed in the affirmative. I asked if you believe. And again they promised. Yes, having not the faintest as to what. Speaker bridled every decibel of this ignorant momentum. Turning to Scratch and number two, bind our poet to his wife, he commanded. As number two moved forward to follow orders, Scratch held him back. He quickly moved his eyes to meet mine. Like an entire novel printed on a grain of rice, I had to turn Scratch's expression over and over and over in front of my mind to read everything on it. But in the span of a very slowed-down instant, I got it, as did Sia and Del. He was giving us the respect of allowing only our hands to touch her. But this was real. My wife would be strapped to me, and we would be leaving that way. I, me and my friends, were to carry Miri to a most likely non-existent destination, the Ascension Temple. Carrying a corpse, we were to race a mythological storm to a fictitious place. Using unique denominators, we each did our own math. Revolt or acquiesce. A quest. Dell was instantly sold. I knew this was a death sentence. I did a quick search list of things to live for, found zero results. Holding my wife all the way to the end, never letting Miri go, death by Miri, I could think of nothing more poetic. In a sick way, Speaker had just granted my darkest wish. Many, many things moved through my sister's mind. In the end, her eyes met mine and deferred. I'm with you, Remy. It's your call. I loosened the straps over my chest, opened the harness wide, and approached Miri. Speaker smiled. The crowd made noise. Sia and Dell closed in to help me. The process was clumsy, awkward, and drawn out. Everyone watched as we made one failed misestimation after another, trying to guide Miri in, attempting to leverage weight and move her limbs, me laying on top of her, her being rolled on top of me. 
This morose spectacle recycled the wind and speaker's sails to a very uncomfortable air. The crowd was deeply disturbed. Finally, as I knelt at the foot of the table, we slid Mary off and were able to place her properly. Her front two arms hung over my shoulders. Her limp head rolled forward, pressing her cheek to mine. Her thighs were braced as if straddling me. Her lower legs swayed limp, and her goddess arm dangled. We tightened the straps. My body rejected her weight like a new organ that wouldn't take. Breathing past the sickness, I swallowed the insanity and stood up. Speaker prompted the crowd to begin cheering. They did. With a private gesture to Scratch and number two, we were quickly ushered off stage. Music came on. The monitors filled with cheap images of moons and rain clouds and photoshopped temples and dead girls and big tits. They cheered us farewell like the winning family on a game show being swept away to enjoy a fully paid-for exotic vacation. Sia gagged. Dell gripped his hatchet. Same black car, same route. We were driven to the edge of the city. The car stopped. Scratch turned around. He didn't take his glasses off this time. Get out, he told us. Is it real? Sia begged to know. Is the temple even real? We don't have a map. We don't have food. We don't have any water. What are we supposed to do? Some salted meats, perhaps? Added Dell. For the long journey ahead? Scratch ignored him, and facing forward again, replied, You know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to die, is what he meant. I could tell he didn't like the taste of his words. Now get out and do not return to the city, ever. We exited the car and were left alone. Our old home lay distant and small behind us. Before us, the foothills stretched long to the barely visible edge of the forest, and beyond that the mountains shimmered like a crystal figurine. On the other side spread the ocean. None of us had ever traveled past the statue garden. We stood sweating beneath a hot sun. In useless sandals, traditional jewelry, full makeup, poofy dukes, and a loincloth, we were dressed perfectly for the absurdity our short lives had dropped us off at. My compass pointed only inward. I had no idea where to go from here. Pulling his shoulders back and proudening his posture, Dell took a deep breath. And so begins our quest. Then, turning to Sia and me, Come on, we can do this. We will do this. And he began to walk. Sia lifted the hem of her dress and forced her body to move. I gave a scratch to my dukes, grabbed Miri from the bottom, shuffled her up to a more workable position, and together, as always, we moved one step closer to the end. <laughs>